Amen. Holy, holy is He. If you have your Bibles, take them and turn with me to Matthew chapter 27, beginning in verse 57 and reading through the 28th chapter. We come this morning to consider the resurrection. The questions that we have asked are twofold. One, did Jesus really rise from the dead? And secondly, if he did, so what? What difference does it make, both in our own personal lives and also in the course of human history? Is it really an important matter? The Apostle Paul seemed to think that it was. He said in 1 Corinthians 15, probably one of the earliest writings on the resurrection, even predating probably the Gospels being uh, compiled and written. The Apostle Paul says this, he said, here's the importance of the resurrection. If Jesus Christ is not risen from the dead, then our preaching is in vain. And not only that, your faith is in vain. In other words, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then all this that we're doing here this morning, that we do every Sunday morning, and we do over and over again, uh, week by week, is something that is absolutely unnecessary and really unimportant. You know, Jesus came into the world and he made some rather outlandish claims. He said things like, I am the bread of life. If you eat of me, you'll never hunger again. And I am the water of life. And those who drink of me will never thirst. Speaking of spiritual matters. He said, I am the door. And if you were to enter into the kingdom of God, you must enter through me. Because I am that door and I am the only door. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me and me alone. Those are fairly important claims that Jesus made while he was teaching and while he was preaching on the earth. All of those would be absolutely invalidated and all of those would be absolutely spurious if he did not rise from the dead. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is is the proof, if you will, the establishment, if you will, that he was everything that he said he was. It, It validated his life. It validated his ministry. It validated his teachings. And if you take away the resurrection, if you could disprove the resurrection, then you would very quickly disprove Christianity. And people have been trying to do that for generations. People, skeptics, have been trying to show that there's a ludicrousness to believe that a dead man who was crucified on a cross and went through the horrors of that crucifixion somehow, after being laid in a grave, three days later came back to life and lives forevermore. That is is to skeptics and to the, the natural mind perhaps the most ridiculous claim that could ever be made. But yet for 2,000 years... The church of Jesus Christ has been making just that claim. That he has risen. That he is alive. And he's alive forevermore. I want us to examine that for just a few moments this morning because it is that important. In in Matthew chapter 27 in verse 57, you find Matthew recording these words. And when it was evening... There came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, 
who himself had also become a disciple of Jesus. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him. And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen cloth and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had hewn out in the rock. And he rolled a large stone against the entrance of the tomb, and he went away. And Mary Magdalene was there, and and the other Mary sitting opposite the grave. Now on the next day, the day after the preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered together with Pilate. And they said to him, Sir, we remember that when he was still alive, that deceiver said this, And after three days I am to rise again. Isn't it amazing here that his opponents remember that better than his disciples did? Isn't it amazing that his opponents knew that and prepared for that? And and many of his disciples were so scared and so fearful and so shy, they were running away and hiding somewhere. But, But they said, this is what he said. This is what the deceiver said. Therefore, give orders for the grave to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples may come and steal him away and say to the people, He has risen from the dead. And the last deception will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, You have a guard. Go make it as secure as you know how. And they went and made the grave secure. And along with the guard, they set a seal on the stone. Probably the seal of the Roman Empire. Now after the Sabbath, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to look at the grave. And behold, a severe earthquake had occurred, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled away the stone and sat upon it. And his appearance was like lightning, and his clothing was as white as snow. And the guards shook for fear of him, and became like dead men. The angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus, who has been crucified. He is not here, for he is risen, just as he said. Come and see the place where he was laying. Go quickly and tell his disciples, that he is risen from the dead, and behold, is going ahead of you to Galilee. There you will see him. Behold, I have told you. And they left the tomb quickly with fear and great joy and ran to report it to his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and greeted them, and they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. And Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go, take word to my brethren to leave for Galilee, and there they will see me. Now while they were on their way, some of the guard came into the city and reported to the chief priest all that had happened. And when they had assembled with the elders and consulted together, they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers and said to them, You are to say, and I quote, His disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. If this should come to the governor's ears, we will win him over and keep you out of trouble. And they took the money and did as they had been instructed. And this story was widely spread among the Jews and is even into this day. This is the word of the Lord. This is the account 
Matthew's account. Luke has an account. Mark has an account. And John has an account. All which are very similar but are not identical. This was no convoluted account that they got together on and said, Now listen, let's get all of our facts in order. Let's get them so that they'll be exactly right. Matthew remembered one thing. Mark remembered something else. John remembered something even different, as did Luke. And they, they carried these, these ideas into their writings and they talked about the fullness of that resurrection on that day. But as I said to begin with, there have been many skeptics through the years. Many have said, I don't believe... I cannot believe that a, a dead man raised from the, from the grave and walked among his people and lived among his people and preached to his people for some 40 days after his death and then was ascended into heaven. That is just too much. That is just too spectacular of an idea for me to even consider. Skeptics have written about that for years. You can go to any bookstore and, and find books in the uh, in the religion area that will will question that one of the most popular when i was in college was a book called the passover plot and it was the whole idea was that all this had been planned and arranged and and they 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 scheduled it and they they worked it out and and it just was their doing to make this this facade seem like a reality to many people that was the whole idea of that book but one of my favorite skeptics was a guy named simon greenleaf Greenleaf lived from 1783 to 1852, and for many years he was a professor of law at Harvard uh, University, taught in the Harvard Law School. There were some Christians in his class, and one day one of them challenged him, said, Professor Greenleaf, you are an authority on the rules of evidence. Is that not correct? And he was. He had written a book that was used for many, many years after his death on the laws of legal evidence. How do you take what is evidence and apply it to a situation to either prove or disprove the truth of that situation? And he said, of course, I'm an authority in that. And the, the student, the Christian student, just said, well, Professor Greenleaf, why don't you take your laws of legal evidence and apply it to the resurrection of Jesus Christ and see what you find when you make that application. Greenleaf took up the challenge. He agreed to do it. And for several years he studied that and he took his laws of legal evidence and he took the testimony of the evangelists, the testimony of the gospel writers, and he compared those to one another. After doing so, Greenleaf, the skeptic, the agnostic, became a Christian and trusted Christ. And he made this statement, he said, no unbiased jury in the world could look at the evidence and say that Jesus Christ has not truly risen from the dead. He even wrote a book about it. I tried to, I've got it packed away somewhere. It's the only true antique book, first edition book that I own. But it's Simon Greenleaf's book that's called The Laws of Legal Evidence Applied to the Evangelist. That is the Gospel Writers. I wanted to show it to you, but I couldn't find it. But it's a, it's a great story about how he took his law skills and applied them to the resurrection of Christ and declared that nobody had ever disproved or nothing had ever been even more evident than the re resurrection of Jesus Christ in any other event in all of history. The resurrection was proclaimed by the early church, not as a spiritual experience, not as a thing that they really wanted to see, but as something that actually happened. And historians have even agreed with that. Gary uh, Habermas, the legal authority and historian 
at Liberty University reports that there's now a remarkable degree of agreement even among ancient historians, irrespective of their religious beliefs, about Jesus' resurrection. He said there are at least 12 different facts, 12 separate facts, that are considered to be knowable history by the majority of historians, Christian and non-Christian. One is that Jesus died by crucifixion. That, that has been questioned, that has been doubted, as we'll talk about. One of the questions is, did he not just maybe swoon away? But, but it's pretty much accepted that he died. The evidence of, the, of what was seen there, the water and the blood coming out of his side, indicated suffocation, by, death by suffocation. And so most people agree he died by crucifixion. Most historians agree he was buried. Buried in that grave of Joseph of Arimathea, who, who came in and took him to his own private grave. Joseph, it says, was a rich man, a well-known man, a man of renown there in Jerusalem. Everyone knew where that grave was. And that's where his body was laid. Thirdly, that Jesus' death caused the disciples to despair and to lose hope, believing that his life was ended. There was no anticipation of just, just give us a couple of days and we will, we will exert the plot. We will bring forth the plot that we've been planning. These disciples, when they saw him dying there on the cross, they scattered, they hid, they feared for their own life. They didn't want to be identified with this man, Jesus, because they feared the very same fate would come to them. They were despaired. They were depressed. They were angry. They were upset. They were hurting. Thirdly, although not as widely accepted by some scholars, many scholars hold that the tomb in which Jesus was buried was discovered to be empty just a few days later. They, they agree that they may have all sorts of explanations that we'll look at in a minute as to why it was empty, but most historians agree that when the disciples went there, when Mary and Mary Magdalene went there that Sunday morning, that the tomb was empty. There was no body there. There are ways that people would explain that besides resurrection, and we'll ask that question in a moment. Beyond that, critical scholars agree that the disciples had experiences which they truly believed were literal appearances of the risen Jesus. They didn't believe they saw a ghost. Well, they might have at first. In fact, at first they, they found it almost unbelievable themselves that here he was. But as they talked with him, as he ate, as he did things that a person literally does, they, become, they became to realize that they had seen literal appearances of Jesus. Because of these experiences, sixth, the disciples were transformed from doubters who were afraid to identify themselves with Jesus to bold proclaimers of his death and resurrection. They went throughout Jerusalem, throughout the, the countryside, and ultimately throughout the known world and proclaimed that this man Jesus had died on the cross and was risen from the dead. Seventh, this met, historians agree that this message of his death and resurrection was literally the center of preaching in the early church. They didn't preach a lot about the Sermon on the Mount. They didn't preach a lot about the teachings of Christ. But the early church proclaimed boldly and without equivocation that Jesus died on the cross as an atonement and was raised from the dead three days later as proof of what he had done. Eighth, historians agree that this was especially proclaimed in Jerusalem where he had just died very shortly before that and was buried 
And there was plenty of ways to validate or disprove that. Right there in Jerusalem, right where the events happened, there was no question about that. As a result of this preaching, the church grew. Actually, the church was born. There's a lot of people who say today, well, the church invented the resurrection to, to kind of to kind of have a capstone on which they could say this is reality and they came up with this idea and they invented the resurrection nothing to be further than the truth the church didn't invent the resurrection the resurrection invented the church and became the central message and as it was preached as it was proclaimed the church grew tenth historians agree that because of that Sunday became the primary day of worship. You realize before that they worshipped on the Sabbath as, as good Jews. They would go to the temple, they would go to the synagogue, they would go and worship with Jesus on the Sabbath. But because of this resurrection, because of this proclamation, because of this understanding of the reality of it, the day shifted. And now we don't worship on the Jewish Sabbath. We worship on the Lord's Day. The Christian Lord's Day. That every week when we go into church, every single week, we are reminded over and over and over again by that, that He is risen. And that's the the evidence of it. Two other quick historical evidences that that show up are James, the half-brother of Jesus, who had been a real skeptic. Who throughout his whole ministry, Jesus' whole ministry, James thought that his half-brother had literally lost his mind and was some kind of religious fanatic running around the countryside. But James, the half-brother of Jesus, was converted to the faith. And he also believed that he saw the resurrected Jesus along with a large crowd of others. And then twelfth, historians agree that some time later, Saul of Tarsus... No friend of the church, no follower of Jesus while Jesus was on the earth. Saul of Tarsus saw the risen Lord Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus. And that likewise, because of that, he was converted and he believed that Christ was risen. So much so that he would say, as I quoted earlier, that if the cross, if the resurrection is not true, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. But it is kind of improbable. It is, humanly speaking, kind of unbelievable, almost impossible. I'm a real fan of Sherlock Holmes, and, and I, I love the writings of uh, uh, Sir, uh, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. And I remember reading one time when he said, and talking through Sherlock, and asked Sherlock how he saw Sherlock Holmes how he solved his cases so easily. And his response was, when you've eliminated the impossible... Whatever remains, however improbable, must be the truth. Looking at the resurrection of Christ, it's easy to to eliminate the impossible here. And then we have to look at the evidence and say, well, what's remaining, even if it seems improbable to the human natural mind, must be the truth. You examine the evidence. You look at it and you study it and you talk about it. You think about the reality of it. And there are really six things that have been the, the cry against the resurrection of Christ by all the skeptics of the world. First of all, they said, well, the disciples just lied. 
They, they ran and they said that the tomb was empty, but it really wasn't. And they spread this hysteria throughout Jerusalem and, and people started to believe it and they got caught up in it and, and everybody just didn't bother to examine it. They just believed what Peter and John and Matthew and the others had said and so they just lied. Or even worse, it was a myth of the early church. Even uh, some said made up years later because other religions had their re- resurrection myths and so uh, Christianity needed a resurrection myth. So the church pulled together and said, we must talk about Jesus having raised from the dead. Do you realize that most historians now that have studied the situation realize that of all the resurrection tales, all the resurrection myths that are out there, they all followed somewhere around the 2nd century A.D. Most of them followed the account of Jesus. We didn't get the resurrection from myths of other religions. Other religions got their resurrections from Jesus' resurrection and tried to elevate their gods, their false gods, to the height or to the place of Jesus. Did the disciples just lie? It's amazing. They went out and they taught one of the greatest moral, some of the greatest moral truths the world has ever seen. They proclaimed that this one who raised from the dead taught the moral truths of the Sermon on the Mount, taught the moral truths of of a life that was without sin. I think it's quite unlikely that they lied. And most of these disciples, no, of the original disciples, all of these disciples met with horrible deaths were tortured in some cases and crucified in some cases and beheaded in some cases and all they had to do to keep that one from happening was simply say, listen, we made it all up. It was all a big joke. They never did. They all went to their death one by one and many thousands beyond those first eleven. Many thousands who went to their death proclaiming, He is alive. He is risen from the dead. I mean, I can understand one or two of them. Peter was so stubborn, he would have probably held out to the end. But all of them? That's highly unlikely. Second thing they said was, with the, and, and they said it in this passage here. They, they came together and as the soldiers told the authorities, the chief priests and the Pharisees, what had taken place. They said, okay, here's what we say. Here's the story. The disciples came in and stole the body. Okay? And if it comes to the governor's ears, who is your superior, who, by the way, uh, these soldiers were put there to guard that tomb and be sure that didn't happen, and the penalty for them letting that happen was quite severe. It was their own death. Roman soldiers didn't just fall asleep on guard. When they were on duty, they were charged with their own lives to stay alert and stay ready and to to, to guard whatever it was that they were guarding. And this tomb was sealed, probably with the Roman seal, which expressed all of the authority of the emperor, all of the authority of the Roman Empire placed upon it. And they stood there. Let me tell you something, folks. Those Roman soldiers didn't go to sleep in front of that grave. They would have been beating themselves about each other's head to keep one another awake. Because if it came back and they had been derelict and slept on the job, then they would have died. Probably the whole unit. And what about those disciples? They were in no real condition to go in and steal the body. They were hiding. They were running. They were afraid for their own lives. And as far as we know, they were unarmed. They might have had a little dagger or something they could have carried with them. But this was the Roman cohort that stood guard there, fully armed, fully armored. 
One guy said maybe Peter went in with a fish and slapped him around a little bit. Very improbable. The fact that the disciples stole the body is just not reasonable. And, and, and Matthew even says it's funny, it's still around today. Do you know all they had to do if that were the case? Was to produce a body? Or show that, that this is what had happened and, and they could have found that in that city of Jerusalem? There's another theory that said this is how it really happened. They, they really were afraid the disciples might try something stupid like that. It, it'd be fruitless, and, but they might try it. And so the third objection to the evidence is, well, the authorities hid the body. They took the body themselves. They said, we know this is what they're going to say, so we're just going to take the body and we're going to keep it in our possession and we're going to kind of hold it hostage until all this stuff blows over and then it'll be done with. How silly is that? If that were the case, once the disciples went back to the tomb, the stones rolled away, there's no body there, and, and, and nothing else was there except those grave clothes. And they started going through the streets of Jerusalem saying, He is risen from the dead. He is risen. Jesus, who was crucified, has risen. All the, all the authorities had to do was take that body, lay it on a cart, and move it through the streets of Jerusalem and say, Here's the body! Here's the body! And it would have been over with. It would have been done for. Some said, Well, the women went to the wrong tomb. Matter of fact, they use this passage out of Matthew chapter 28 to, to attest to that. They says in verse 6, it says, He is not here, just as he said, come and see where he was laying or lying. And they would say, they say, Well, see, this is just a little embellishment here when it puts in there, He is risen, what the person actually said. It probably wasn't an angel, it's probably just a gardener who was standing nearby. Said, Oh, he's not here. Come and let me show you where he was laying. And they took him to another grave. This was not the uh, this was not the municipal cemetery, folks. This was not some great graveyard where a lot of people are buried all the time. This is a private tomb of Joseph of Arimathea, probably on his own property that he had prepared for his own family and nobody else. It wasn't a matter of whether he went to the wrong place in the cemetery and just got confused. Again, if they went to the wrong tomb, all the authorities had to do was say, Oh, here's the right tomb. Here's the body of Jesus. He is still in the grave. Untouched, undealt with, unalive. Others have said he just swooned. That on the cross he, and he did die quicker than, than most prisoners did. Usually they, they would break, the, if you remember the story from the, from the uh, Gospels, they broke the legs of the, the two thieves that were on each side of him so that they could no longer push up with their legs and get their breath and, and would cause the suffocation to go on and be hurried up so they get them down before nightfall. But here was Jesus. When they came to break his legs, they didn't have to. He was already dead. They pierced his side. And the scripture says that water and blood came out together. Indicative of suffocation. Indicative of death. But some say he just swooned. He faked it. When he got in the grave and got wrapped up in those grave claws and had some of that embalming stuff, perfumes put on him, which would be somewhat suffocating, I would think, in themselves, 
He lay there in the cool dampness of the tomb, and voila, three days later, he kind of shook off the grave clothes and said, Ah, I think I'll go out of here. And so this huge boulder that had been rolled in front of the, the, the door of the grave, here he was with hands and, and feet pierced and a piercing his side. Even if he had to come back very weakened, no doubt from the loss of blood, he pushed open the stone, scared the living daylights out of Roman soldiers to where they fell as dead men, and then walked out and for 40 days he convinced his disciples that he was alive. And perfect. He didn't swoon there. He died. He died a horrible, excruciating, painful death. But the worst of his death was not the handprints. The worst of his death was not the the nails in his feet or the spear in his side. The worst of his death was not the suffocation that comes from hanging on the cross. And show all that kind of suffering through a movie like The Passion of the Christ or or some other movie or some other depiction. That was not the worst of his suffering. The worst of his suffering was when the sins of the people were laid upon him. He who knew no sin became sin so that we who have no righteousness might become the very righteousness of God. That in itself was a burden almost unbearable. That he didn't deserve. But he bore it in our place. And then there's one other question we have to ask. Because many have said, well, what happened was the disciples had hallucinations. They really wanted to see him. They, they really had heard him say, you know, I'm, I'm going to be die, I'm going to be dying, but I'm going to come back to life in three days. And so they, they worked themselves into a frenzy and they saw these hallucinations. They really thought they saw the Lord. Well, if you read any good book on hallucinations by medical doctors or psychiatrists or those who study those things, they will tell you hallucinations are, are rather strange phenomena. They typically happen individually. It would not have been surprising if perhaps Peter had had a hallucination of Jesus and then ran and told everybody, I saw Jesus, I saw him. And they would have said, right, Peter, where was he? Well, he was right there in my room. Well, where is he now? I don't know, he's gone. Because hallucinations, even those desired, even those who are anticipated and and come about because of a great desire to see something, usually only last a few seconds, a few minutes at the most. It's highly irregular for three people to see the same hallucination at the same time in the same place as the women did. It's even more unlikely for 12 or 11 gathered in an upper room trying to decide what they were going to do with their lives to all of a sudden see that same hallucination. Eleven disciples sitting there seeing the same thing. That's unbelievable. But Paul tells us that 40 days after the resurrection, just before the Lord ascended into heaven, that there were 500 people gathered at one place... And they all saw the same thing. 
An hallucination, I say last seconds or, or minutes at the most, this hallucination lasted and went on for 40, 40 days after that resurrection took place. Well, what does that mean? I, I agree with, with Simon Greenleaf, but I believe that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is a fact. That it is perhaps the most provable fact of all of history. If, as, as one lawyer said in, in writing about this, uh, he said, you know, if this were a secular document, if, if the Bible were just a secular document, its, its truth and its factualness wouldn't, would not be questioned by anyone. But you see, it's more than that. This says that what you do with the resurrection of Christ... Depend, uh, establishes your eternal destiny. What you do and what you believe about the resurrection of Christ is has eternal significance, not just an intellectual curiosity. Because you see, Paul said in Romans, he said, if you, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead... You shall be saved. The resurrection is important in understanding salvation. The resurrection is the linchpin, the center point of all of the Christian faith. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart, the deepest part of your being, that God raised Him from the dead, you shall be saved. Oh, there are a lot today who want to say, well, if it, it ought to be enough to believe the, the moral teachings of Jesus. It ought to be enough to believe that he was a great moral teacher. Surely he didn't really die for sins and raise from the dead, but he was a great moral teacher. He was a great prophet from God. But he really doesn't leave that option, does he? Because he says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by me. If that's a lie, he's no great moral teacher. He's a liar. If he knew that he wasn't that, he's no great moral teacher because he's an imposter. He's a deceiver, just like the scribes and the Pharisees and the chief priest wanted to call him in Matthew 27. I ran across some good theology from a very unlikely source about three weeks ago. I was reading an interview out in Portland, Oregon, uh, with Christopher Hitchens. I don't know if you know Christopher Hitchens or not, but he's one of the famed new atheists. He's written a book, God is Not Great, and some other things. And he goes around the country many times debating Christians on, on the reality of Christ, the reality of God, the reality of Christianity, the, the whole nine yards. And he was being interviewed in Portland, Oregon, by a Unitarian minister, Marilyn Sewell. And they were talking, it's a long interview, but there's one particular point that just grabbed my attention. Sewell, in talking to Hinchin, said, The religion you cite in your book is generally the fundamentalist faith of various kinds. I'm a liberal Christian, and I don't take the stories from Scripture literally. I don't believe in the doctrine of atonement that Jesus died for our sins, for example. Do you make any distinction between fundamentalist faith and liberal religion? This is what the atheist said. This is what Christopher Hinchin said. He said, I would say that if you don't believe that Jesus of Nazareth was the Christ and Messiah, 
and that He rose again from the dead, and by His sacrifice, sins are forgiven, then you're really not, in any meaningful sense, a Christian. You don't expect to find good theology from atheists. You know, you really don't, but the, but he, he nails it. He nails it. It's not a matter of saying, oh, well, I don't believe literally that Jesus raised from the dead. That's no big deal. Let's just talk about love, peace, and joy. That's what he was all about. He, he was just always going around making people feel good and feel happy. Yeah, I like when he called the Pharisees, you brood of vipers, you whitewashed tombs. That was really a seeker-friendly message, wasn't it? No. Hinchins is right. You either believe he is who he said he was, the Messiah, the one who came as as an atoning sacrifice for sin. You either believe he really is the way, the truth, and the life, and that no man gets to the Father but by him, or you have to believe he's a liar or a lunatic or, or something worse. You see, Easter as we celebrate it as Resurrection Sunday, really is important. And He really did rise from the dead. And He really is who He said He was. And because of that, He commands you to believe and repent. He commands you to come to faith in Him, put your trust in Him, repent of sin and turn from that and turn to Him by faith. Not by works. Not by trying to earn the way and trying to do all you can to make it right. Because you can't do that. But by simply saying, Lord, I need you. Lord, I am a sinner. I, I am a sinner in need of your grace, in need of your mercy. Lord, I am doomed without you. I believe that you raised from the dead. And I desire for you to be my Lord. And I desire to confess that and proclaim that and and make that known to all who know me, to all I come in contact with. You see, he had an unbelievable ministry for three years. He had an unbelievable set of teachings. He lived an unbelievably impeccable life. But apart from his death, and apart from his resurrection, none of that matters. He is either Lord of all, or he's not Lord at all. He's either the King of Kings, he's the greatest fraud that ever lived makes Bernie look like child's play Madoff look like child's play he is real and he's alive you know there were some resurrections in the scripture Lazarus was raised but you know what happened to Lazarus Lazarus was raised and Lazarus died again in the Old Testament you had Elijah and Elisha But those who were raised, they died again. 
This is real resurrection. This is eternal resurrection. This is resurrection that brings life to all who believe. Do you believe? Have you confessed Him before men by baptism? Proclaiming the reality of your death and burial in Christ and resurrection with Him to newness of life spiritually? I invite you to Christ if you haven't. I invite you to come and believe. Put your faith in Him and make that known. Let's pray together. Father, we bow in Your presence, thanking You that You are who You said that You are. Your proclamations are true, and Your truth is real. Father, I pray for men and women here this morning who do not know You. I pray that Your Holy Spirit will bring the reality of the aliveness of Christ to them today. Show them their sin and their need for a Savior. And draw them to faith. Father, draw them to Christ. Father, we thank You this morning for Your goodness and for Your grace. In Jesus' name. Amen. Our song is going to be a dead...